This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to find out how you can volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Reading by John Leader, Bloomington, Illinois. History of England, from the Accession of James II, by Thomas Babington Macaulay. Chapter 9, Part 11. And now the Hague was crowded with British adventurers of all the various parties which the tyranny of James had united in a strange coalition. Old royalists who had shed their blood for the throne, old agitators of the army of the Parliament, Tories who had been persecuted in the days of the Exclusion Bill, Whigs who had fled to the Continent for their share in the Rye House plot. Conspicuous in this great assemblage were Charles Gerard, Earl of Macclesfield, an ancient cavalier who had fought for Charles I and had shared the exile of Charles II, Archibald Campbell, who was the eldest son of the unfortunate Argyle, but had inherited nothing except an illustrious name and the inalienable affection of a numerous clan, Charles Paulette, Earl of Wiltshire, heir apparent of the Marquisate of Winchester, and Peregrine Osborne, Lord Dumblane, heir apparent of the earldom of Danby. Mordaunt, exulting in the prospect of ventures irresistibly attractive to his fiery nature, was among the foremost volunteers. Fletcher of Saltoon had learned, while guarding the frontier of Christendom against the infidels, that there was once more a hope of deliverance for his country, and had hastened to offer the help of his sword. Sir Patrick Hume, who had, since his flight from Scotland, lived humbly at Utrecht, now emerged from his obscurity, but, fortunately, his eloquence could, on this occasion, do little mischief, for the Prince of Orange was by no means disposed to be the lieutenant of a debating society such as that which had ruined the enterprise of Argyle. The subtle and restless Wildman, who had some time before found England an unsafe residence, and had retired to Germany, now repaired from Germany to the Prince's court. There, too, was Carstairs, a Presbyterian minister from Scotland, who in craft and courage had no superior among the politicians of his age. He had been entrusted some years before by Fagel with important secrets, and had resolutely kept them in spite of the most horrible torments which could be inflicted by boot and thumbscrew. His rare fortitude had earned for him as large a share of the prince's confidence and esteem as was granted to any man except Bentinck. Ferguson could not remain quiet when a revolution was preparing. He secured for himself a passage in the fleet, and made himself busy among his fellow emigrants. But he found himself generally distrusted and despised. He had been a great man in the knot of ignorant and hot-headed outlaws who had urged the feeble Monmouth to destruction. But there was no place for a low-minded agitator, half-maniac and half-knave, among the grave statesmen and generals who partook the cares of the resolute and sagacious William. The difference between the expedition of 1685 and the expedition of 1688 was sufficiently marked by the difference between the manifestos which the leaders of those expeditions published. For Monmouth Ferguson had scribbled an absurd and brutal libel about the burning of London, the strangling of Godfrey, the butchering of Essex, and the poisoning of Charles. The declaration of William was drawn up by the grand pensionary Fagel, who was highly renowned as a publicist. Though weighty and learned, 
It was, in its original form, much too prolix, but it was abridged and translated into English by Burnett, who well understood the art of popular composition. It began by a solemn preamble, setting forth that, in every community, the strict observance of the law was necessary alike to the happiness of nations and to the security of governments. The Prince of Orange had therefore seen with deep concern that the fundamental laws of a kingdom, with which he was by blood and by marriage closely connected, had, by the advice of evil counsellors, been grossly and systematically violated. The power of dispensing with acts of Parliament had been strained to such a point that the whole legislative authority had been transferred to the Crown. Decisions at variance with the spirit of the Constitution had been obtained from the tribunals by turning out judge after judge, till the bench had been filled with men ready to obey implicitly the directions of the government. Notwithstanding the king's repeated assurances that he would maintain the established religion, persons notoriously hostile to that religion had been promoted not only to civil offices, but also to ecclesiastical benefices. The government of the church had, in defiance of express statutes, been entrusted to a new court of high commission, and in that court one avowed papist had a seat. Good subjects, for refusing to violate their duty and their oaths, had been ejected from their property, in contempt of the great charter of the liberties of England. Meanwhile, persons who could not legally set foot on the island had been placed at the head of seminaries for the corruption of youth. Lieutenants, deputy lieutenants, justices of the peace, had been dismissed in multitudes for refusing to support a pernicious and unconstitutional policy. The franchises of almost every borough in the realm had been invaded. The courts of justice were in such a state that their decisions, even in civil matters, had ceased to inspire confidence, and that their servility in criminal cases had brought on the kingdom the stain of innocent blood. All these abuses, loathed by the English nation, were to be defended, it seemed, by an army of Irish papists. Nor was this all. The most arbitrary princes had never accounted it an offence in a subject modestly and peaceably to represent his grievances and to ask for relief. But supplication was now treated as a high misdemeanor in England, for no crime but that of offering to the sovereign a petition drawn up in the most respectful terms the fathers of the church had been imprisoned and prosecuted, and every judge who gave his voice in their favor had instantly been turned out. The calling of a free and lawful parliament might indeed be an effectual remedy for all these evils, but such a parliament, unless the whole spirit of the administration were changed, the nation could not hope to see. It was evidently the intention of the court to bring together, by means of regulated corporations and of popish returning officers, a body which would be a House of Commons in name alone. Lastly, there were circumstances which raised a grave suspicion that the child who was called Prince of Wales was not really born of the Queen. For these reasons, the Prince, mindful of his near relation to the royal house, and grateful for the affection which the English people had ever shown to his beloved wife and to himself, had resolved, in compliance with the request of many lords spiritual and temporal, and of many other persons of all ranks, to go over at the head of a force sufficient to repel violence. He abjured all thought of conquest. He protested that, while his troops remained in the island, 
they should be kept under the strictest restraints of discipline, and that, as soon as the nation had been delivered from tyranny, they should be sent back. His single object was to have a free and legal Parliament assembled, and to the decision of such a Parliament he solemnly pledged himself to leave all questions, both public and private. As soon as copies of this declaration were banded about the Hague, signs of dissension began to appear among the English. Wildman, indefatigable in mischief, prevailed on some of his countrymen, and among others, on the headstrong and volatile Mordaunt, to declare that they would not take up arms on such grounds. The paper had been drawn up merely to please the Cavaliers and the Parsons. The injuries of the Church and the trial of the bishops had been put too prominently forward, and nothing had been said of the tyrannical manner in which the Tories, before their rupture with the court, had treated the Whigs. Wildman then brought forward a counter-project, prepared by himself, which, if it had been adopted, would have disgusted all the Anglican clergy and four-fifths of the landed aristocracy. The leading Whigs strongly opposed him. Russell in particular declared that, if such an insane course were taken, there would be an end of the coalition from which alone the nation could expect deliverance. The dispute was at length settled by the authority of William, who, with his usual good sense, determined that the manifesto should stand nearly as Fagel and Burnett had framed it. While these things were passing in Holland, James had at length become sensible of his danger. Intelligence which could not be disregarded came pouring in from various quarters. At length, a despatch from Albeville removed all doubts. It is said that, when the king had read it, the blood left his cheeks, and he remained sometimes speechless. He might indeed well be appalled. The first easterly wind would bring a hostile armament to the shores of his realm. All Europe, one single power alone excepted, was impatiently waiting for the news of his downfall. The help of that single power he had madly rejected, nay, he had requited with insult the friendly intervention which might have saved him. The French armies, which, but for his own folly, might have been employed in overawing the States-General, were besieging Philipsburg or garrisoning Mentz. In a few days he might have to fight, on English ground, for his crown and for the birthright of his infant son. His means were indeed in appearance great. The navy was in a much more efficient state than at the time of his accession, and the improvement is partly to be attributed to his own exertions. He had appointed no Lord High Admiral or Boards of Admiralty, but had kept the chief direction of maritime affairs in his own hands, and had been strenuously assisted by Pepys. It is a proverb that the eye of a master is more to be trusted than that of a deputy, and, in an age of corruption and peculation, a department on which a sovereign, even of very slender capacity, bestows close personal attention, is likely to be comparatively free from abuses. It would have been easy to find an abler minister of marine than James, but it would not have been easy to find, among the public men of that age, any minister of marine except James, who would not have embezzled stores, taken bribes from contractors, and charged the crown with the cost of repairs which had never been made. The king was, in truth, almost the only person who could be trusted not to rob the king. There had therefore been, during the last three years, much less waste and pilfering in the dockyards than formerly. Ships had been built which were fit to go to sea. 
an excellent order had been issued increasing the allowances of captains and at the same time strictly forbidding them to carry merchandise from port to port without the royal permission the effect of these reforms was already perceptible and james found no difficulty in fitting out at short notice a considerable fleet thirty ships of the line all third rates and fourth rates were collected in the thames under the command of lord dartmouth the loyalty of dartmouth was above suspicion and he was thought to have as much professional skill and knowledge as any of the patrician sailors who in that age rose to the highest naval commands without a regular naval training and who were at once flag officers on the sea and colonels of infantry on shore the regular army was the largest that any king of england had ever commanded and was rapidly augmented new companies were incorporated with the existing regiments commissions for the raising of fresh regiments were issued four thousand men were added to the english establishment three thousand were sent for with all speed from ireland as many more were ordered to march southward from scotland james estimated the force with which he should be able to meet the invaders at near forty thousand troops exclusive of the militia the navy and army were therefore far more than sufficient to repel a dutch invasion but could the navy could the army be trusted would not the train bands flock by thousands to the standard of the deliverer the party which had, a few years before, drawn the sword for Monmouth, would undoubtedly be eager to welcome the Prince of Orange. And what had become of the party which had, during seven and forty years, been the bulwark of monarchy? Where were now those gallant gentlemen who had ever been ready to shed their blood for the crown? Outraged and insulted, driven from the bench of justice, and deprived of all military command, they saw the peril of their ungrateful sovereign with undisguised delight. Where were those priests and prelates who had, from ten thousand pulpits, proclaimed the duty of obeying the anointed delegate of God? Some of them had been imprisoned, some had been plundered, all had been placed under the iron rule of the High Commission, and had been in hourly fear, lest some new freak of tyranny should deprive them of their freeholds, and leave them without a morsel of bread." that churchmen would even now so completely forget the doctrine which had been their peculiar boast as to join in active resistance seemed incredible. But could the oppressor expect to find among them the spirit which in the preceding generation had triumphed over the armies of Essex and Waller, and had yielded only after a desperate struggle to the genius and vigor of Cromwell? The tyrant was overcome by fear. He ceased to repeat that concession had always ruined princes, and sullenly owned that he must stoop to court the Tories once more. There is reason to believe that Halifax was, at this time, invited to return to office, and that he was not unwilling to do so. The part of mediator between the throne and the nation was, of all parts, that for which he was best qualified, and of which he was most ambitious. How the negotiation with him was broken off is not known, but it is not improbable that the question of the dispensing power was the insurmountable difficulty. His hostility to that power had caused his disgrace three years before, and nothing that had since happened had been of a nature to change his views. James, on the other hand, was fully determined to make no concession on that point. 
As to other matters he was less pertinacious. He put forth a proclamation in which he solemnly promised to protect the Church of England and to maintain the Act of Uniformity. He declared himself willing to make great sacrifices for the sake of Concord. He would no longer insist that Roman Catholics should be admitted into the House of Commons, and he trusted that his people would justly appreciate such a proof of his disposition to meet their wishes. Three days later he notified his intention to replace all the magistrates and deputy lieutenants who had been dismissed for refusing to support his policy. On the day after the appearance of this notification, Compton's suspension was taken off. At the same time, the king gave an audience to all the bishops who were then in London. They had requested admittance to his presence for the purpose of tendering their counsel in this emergency. The primate was spokesman. He respectfully asked that the administration might be put into the hands of persons duly qualified, that all acts done under pretense of the dispensing power might be revoked, that the ecclesiastical commission might be annulled, that the wrongs of Magdalen College might be redressed, and that the old franchises of the municipal corporations might be restored. He hinted very intelligibly that there was one most desirable event which would completely secure the throne and quiet the distracted realm. If His Majesty would reconsider the points in dispute between the churches of Rome and England, perhaps, by the divine blessing on the arguments which the bishops wished to lay before him, he might be convinced that it was his duty to return to the religion of his father and of his grandfather. Thus far, Sancroft said, he had spoken the sense of his brethren. There remained a subject on which he had not taken counsel with them, but to which he thought it his duty to advert. He was indeed the only man of his profession who could advert to that subject without being suspected of an interested motive. The Metropolitan See of York had been three years vacant. The Archbishop implored the King to fill it speedily with a pious and learned divine, and added that such a divine might without difficulty be found among those who then stood in the royal presence. The King commanded himself sufficiently to return thanks for this unpalatable counsel, and promised to consider what had been said. Of the dispensing power he would not yield one tittle. No unqualified person was removed from any civil or military office, but some of Sancroft's suggestions were adopted. Within forty-eight hours the Court of High Commission was abolished. It was determined that the charter of the City of London, which had been forfeited six years before, should be restored and the Chancellor was sent in state to carry back the venerable parchment to Guildhall. A week later, the public was informed that the Bishop of Winchester, who was by virtue of his office visitor of Magdalen College, had it in charge from the King to correct whatever was amiss in that society. It was not without a long struggle and a bitter pang that James stooped to this last humiliation. Indeed, he did not yield to the vicar apostolic Leyburn, who seems to have behaved on all occasions like a wise and honest man, declared that in his judgment the ejected president and fellows had been wronged, and that on religious as well as on political grounds restitution ought to be made to them. In a few days appeared a proclamation restoring the forfeited franchises of all the municipal corporations. James flattered himself that concessions so great made in the short space of a month would bring back to him the hearts of his people. 
Nor can it be doubted that such concessions, made before there was reason to expect an invasion from Holland, would have done much to conciliate the Tories. But gratitude is not to be expected by rulers who give to fear what they have refused to justice. During three years the King had been proof to all argument and to all entreaty. Every minister who had dared to raise his voice in favor of the civil and ecclesiastical constitution of the realm had been disgraced. A parliament eminently loyal had ventured to protest gently and respectfully against the violation of the fundamental laws of England, and had been sternly reprimanded, prorogued, and dissolved. Judge after judge had been stripped of the ermine for declining to give decisions opposed to the whole common and statute law. The most respectable cavaliers had been excluded from all share in the government of their counties for refusing to betray the public liberties. Scores of clergymen had been deprived of their livelihood for observing their oaths. Prelates, to whose steadfast fidelity the king owed the crown which he wore, had on their knees besought him not to command them to violate the laws of God and of the land. Their modest petition had been treated as a seditious libel. They had been brown-beaten, threatened, imprisoned, prosecuted, and had narrowly escaped utter ruin. Then, at length, the nation, finding that right was borne down by might, and that even supplication was regarded as a crime, began to think of trying the chances of war. The oppressor learned that an armed deliverer was at hand, and would be eagerly welcomed by Whigs and Tories, dissenters and churchmen. All was immediately changed. That government which had requited constant and zealous service with spoliation and persecution, that government which, to weighty reasons and pathetic entreaties, had replied only by injuries and insults, became in a moment strangely gracious. Every gazette now announced the removal of some grievance. It was then evident that on the equity, the humanity, the plighted word of the king, no reliance could be placed, and that he would govern well only so long as he was under the strong dread of resistance. His subjects were therefore by no means disposed to restore him a confidence which he had justly forfeited, or to relax the pressure which had wrung from him the only good acts of his whole reign. The general impatience for the arrival of the Dutch became every day stronger. The gales which at this time blew obstinately from the west, and which at once prevented the prince's armament from sailing, and brought fresh Irish regiments from Dublin to Chester, were bitterly cursed and reviled by the common people. The weather, it was said, was popish. Crowds stood in Cheapside gazing intently at the weathercock on the graceful steeple of Bow Church, and praying for a Protestant wind. End of Part 11